Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Look, daddy, daddy. I'm going to ask you not to listen to this episode. And I know you're not going to listen, and that's fine. But I'm telling you in advance, we're about to talk about my dating and sex life. You're welcome to listen. You're twice my age. I'm sure I won't broach any topics that you're unfamiliar with. You can listen all you like, but don't ever talk to me about it. Deal? That was me giving you time to log off. If you're still here, I'm going to take it that you agree with the deal. Y'all, I had a whole list of things that I wanted to talk about today. There was Quavo and Saweetie in, in that elevator video. And there was Niecy Nash on Red Table Talk, which I might actually incorporate that because I might need to get on the Niecy Nash plan. She looked happy as fuck with Jessica. Right now, I think I'm done with men. I'm not really into cat, but I may have to give it a try because dick ain't working for me. It ain't. I wanted to talk about Michael Strahan's new teeth too. Allegedly, he's closed his gap, which I don't like at all. He's a beautiful man. I used to do GMA a lot when I was still on the East Coast. There is video evidence of me blatantly shooting my shot on camera during a segment. And for Michael Strahan, shameless, blatant, unafraid, never scared. He's a gorgeous man with the gap. These pictures floating around with that closed gap do absolutely nothing for me. I am displeased. I wanted to talk about I, Tina, the documentary on Tina Turner that's on HBO. We talked about it last episode and I said I would review it when I got a chance to see it. Well, I got my hair braided the other day. I had to sit for 11 hours. So one of the things that we watched was I, Tina, and my God. I knew I loved Tina Turner. I knew that I liked her music. I knew the, the gist of her story, but I had no idea the depth of it. I am in love with Tina Turner right now. Platonic, fan-adoring love. Not like the love I would have for someone like Jessica Betts, Nisi's wife. Or husband, as Nisi calls her. I'm going to save most of that for next week's episode. Because in addition to the story I have to tell you, uh, we also have an interview with one of my friends in my head, Rainier, 
from Love Life of an Asian Guy. I don't know if you guys follow him. His platform functions very similar to this one. It's just from the perspective of an Asian male. But as the title of his platform would indicate, he started off talking about his dating life, much like a bell in Brooklyn. And then over time, he's transitioned to talking about everything that's relevant. So less on dating, but a lot of politics and pop culture and any cultural conversations that he thinks are interesting and relevant and would make for good conversation for his audience. He's really, really smart. And I don't remember the post that got me hooked on him, but I've been reading him faithfully for about two years. He's one of those people where when something crazy happens, I go to his page to see what his take is. I think he is smart, he is thoughtful, and he is fair. And he is with us today to talk about the history of and the rise of anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. right now. So it's a really smart conversation. So we'll get to that. That'll be the respectable portion. But first, we're going to have to talk about the ratchet shit because it happened last night and I'm still kind of 38 hot about it, if you can't tell. So either on Tuesday's episode or last Friday's episode, I mentioned that I had gone on a date. And to me, it was just a very casual mention. I went on this date with this guy. I enjoyed our conversation in his company. It was a two-line throwaway. So many of you latched onto that and were in my DMs. If you know me in my text, harp out, harp out, harp out. Who this man? And you know what? I deserve that. Every time one of my friends or even people who are friends in my head, once I see them go Instagram official with somebody, I am all in the comments with the harp out. Harp out. So I deserved it. I deserved it. Even though I casually mentioned a man on a podcast that I went on a date with. I did not say I was in a relationship. I definitely was not Instagram official with him. And in fact, I don't even follow him on Instagram. Even before I blocked him last night. So met this dude or better reconnected with this guy who I've known for a while. We were just never in the same place, never available at the same time. And as it would turn out, we now both live in L.A. So we reconnected. We went on a date, which I thought was a wonderful first date. I had a great time. At the end of the date, he was like, oh my God, I so want to kiss you right now. And I wanted to kiss him. I didn't because I'm like global pandemic. And so he was like, I really want to see you again. Like, can we make this happen? So I was like, I would love that. I had a wonderful time. So fast forward a week and we go on another date. Great conversation, great energy, great sexual chemistry. And I was like, yo, like, I like him. He's dope. I look forward to getting to know him. I kissed him goodnight on that date. I was like, global pandemic, be damned. Like, I need to put my mouth on this person. It just is what it is. So then we have a third date, which was literally the day after the second date. And we got into this weird conversation in which I felt like he was, like, pressuring me for sex. And I found myself explaining to him, I was like, look, It's not a lack of desire to have sex with you. Like, I'm very attracted to you. And I told him point blank. I was like, it's really a matter of time. As as long as you don't say anything stupid, I like our communication. I like our energy. Just give me a chance to, like, get to know you. And it's not even on some, like, Steve Harvey shit, like, make him wait 90 days, blah, blah, blah. My logic is I think sex should be free and fun and as filthy as possible within the bounds of consent. And in order to be free and try new things and do like nasty, freaky, filthy shit that I ain't ashamed of, I need to feel like I have a connection with a person. It doesn't mean we have to be in a relationship. It doesn't mean we have to be in love, but I at least need to feel like comfortable. There's no specific timeline on it at this juncture that we're having this conversation, which is date three. I'm just not there yet. And honest to God, it had been a while. So if he hadn't said anything stupid probably would have enveloped him in like no more than two weeks because between me and you I really need to have sex right now it's been a long pandemic and I have a top of the line sex toy it's really really close to the real thing okay dude and I have this this conversation about basically he's ready to fuck and I'm just like I'm not there yet I say to him that you know I think that we're at an impasse because like I respect that you want what you want when you want it and how you want it I don't want you to compromise for me because I'm not willing to do it for you I don't know you yet so you should go pursue a situation 
with someone who who thinks more like you do. And I will do the same. Like, best of luck to you. So he walked me to my car and we had like this really sad goodbye. It was like this really intense, like, I don't want to let you go kind of hug. I I drove home thinking that's the last time I'm going to see him. That's probably the last time I'm going to hear from him. Things just don't work out sometimes. But I didn't think any less of him. I just thought we were on two different pages. I was actually surprised when he hit me up the next morning and was like, it was really great seeing you. Thank you for the company and the conversation. I hope you have a beautiful day. And I was like, oh, okay. Like it ain't over. All right. So that was Monday. We hadn't talked, talked until last night. So he calls me last night around 930. He was like, can we talk about Sunday? And I was like, sure, I'm not doing anything. I'm open to having that conversation. Basically, he reiterated like the same thing that he said. And I was like, I feel you like you want to fuck. I get it. And you know what? Maybe I'm off. I spent most of my 30s in a relationship with the same person who then I married, who then I divorced. Maybe I missed a great wave of change and social mores. Maybe the third day is fucking time, which if that is your M.O., I have no judgment. What you do with your vaggie is your business. But as for me and my vaggie, I'm just not comfortable having sex with someone that I don't know enough to feel comfortable with. And I don't feel like it's okay to make me feel bad or make me feel like something's wrong with me for not being down to fuck on the third date. And like, if that makes me approved, if that makes me old fashioned or ill-equipped for the current dating scene, like I'm very okay with getting my chow chow barker and that will be my puppy child slash man. When I left New York, one of the last things that my ex-husband said to me, and he was like, no one's going to want you and you're going to be alone forever. And I was like, all right, if that's the alternative to staying with you, then I'll take it. I made peace with that. So I just, I laid it out to him and I was like, I respect where you are, but I'm just not in that same place. And I'm not willing to have sex in a situation where I'm uncomfortable. And again, if this dude could just shut the fuck up for two weeks, I would probably be taking married women's advice and sitting on his face. So I tell him this and he says, wow. And he was like, well, that's really not the way I was hoping this conversation would go. And I was like, well, okay, well, what way did you see it going? So he says, um, April 1st is always a turning point for me. Okay. But he said some things in his life are not feeling aligned and he really wants to like pare his life down to the basics and get his foundation right and then build and blossom from there. And he was like, do you understand? And I was like, I mean, kind of, but I'm not really sure exactly what you're saying. Like, could you give me an example of like what you mean when you say you're going back to basics? So he says, starting tomorrow, I'm going to be celibate indefinitely until I'm in a relationship. No self-pleasure, no porn, and no sex with others. He's also going to quit drinking and smoking. So I was like, okay, I've gone through intentional bouts of celibacy. I didn't drink for two and a half years. I don't smoke weed. That's never really been my thing. I tried vaping when I first came to L.A., That lasted all of a week. I got way too high. And like, I'll tell you that story one day. I threw up at an airport. It was so bad. So him saying he wants to be celibate is really not the end of earth to me. Like, I like him. I don't know where this is going, if it's going anywhere. As of three days ago, I thought I would never see him again. So I'm like, you know, all right. Like, if that's what you want to do, good for you. Like, far be it for me to stand in the way of someone's progress. And this is also something that he mentioned on our first date. He says he goes to these bouts of of abstinence and celibacy for various things to like clear his mind and focus. But I'm also thinking as he's saying this, like, why is he telling me the same thing twice? And I also know my life just well enough to like, I just have a lot of what the fuck moments. I keep a journal of like crazy shit that happens because this has got to be material for a best-selling book or an Emmy-nominated show someday. This cannot be happening to me in vain. Thinking that it must be material for something great is what keeps me sane and keeps me from taking it personal and keeps me from going crazy. So he's like hemming and hawing and I'm like, what are you not telling me? I feel like I'm missing something here. So he's like, so I was wondering. It's my last night before celibacy and you're the only person I'm talking to right now. And me 
I realized in retrospect that I'm really naive about certain things because I, I didn't, I had no clue where this was going. And I was like, okay. And he was like, um, so I was hoping that like, maybe we could fuck tonight. Hello? That silence was the, was the silence I gave him. Cause I was like, nigga, what? And I wish I had said it out loud because he deserved to be called a nigga in that moment. I was like, did we not just have a conversation about my discomfort level of having sex with someone that I don't know? And then you turn around literally like three minutes later and ask if I can be your last hurrah fuck. So I finally answered him and was like, nah, nah. And I wish again, I had been like, yo, you got me fucked up right now. Like my Brooklyn abandoned me. I've been gone too long. But I do manage to say to him, this is where my screenwriting comes in. Because like, you know, with screenwriting, everything has to have like a sense of urgency. Otherwise, why should I care? If you got all the time in the world, what difference does it make? So I was like, um, it's 930. You got 2.5 hours. I'm sure you can scrounge up someone before your deadline. Good luck to you. He was like, you're saying that, but you don't really mean it. And I was like, I do. I do mean it. I wish you the best on your hunt and on life's journey. May you have all your heart or, or dick's desire. And he was like, when you say it like that, like you sound like you're never going to speak to me again. And I was like, oh, oh, I'm not. I'm not. Never call me again. And he didn't say anything. So I just hung up. I was actually sitting at my desk when we were on the phone. And when I hung up, I just I closed my laptop screen. I clicked off the screen on my desktop. I walked around my place. It's a loft, so it's just one big-ass room. But I just turned off, like, every light that was on. And I just went and got in the bed and pulled the covers over my head and was just like, just go to sleep. I was so fucking blown that I was like, you know what? Just just go to sleep. And I, I was talking to myself out loud. The day is done. Just sleep. Start over in the morning and have a new day. Because today, today is a wrap. So I laid there in the dark under the covers with no top sheet, which drives my mother mad. I'm like, you don't sleep in my bed. Why do you care whether I have a top sheet or not? Not the point. Point is, I laid there for like five minutes and just like, there was nothing swirling through my head, but what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? And finally, I just like sat up and just yelled out loud, like just, what the fuck? I just, I'm just, I'm blown. I'm just like, I'm gonna just get me a dog and I'm gonna be like my 50 year old friends to have like these amazing houses, condos, like all this big boss luxury shit, their vacations, like their whole lives are like fucking amazing. And they don't have husbands or kids. And then I had to think to myself, especially last night, I was like, part of the reason that they are the shit is because they ain't dealing with no nigga shit. Like they made an intentional choice, usually sometime in their late thirties and early forties. And was just like, yeah, I'm not stressing myself out dealing with men. And I don't think all men are bad. I don't think all men are trash. Like, I have to say that. Otherwise, people are going to be like, oh, my God, she hates men. I don't. I just, I'm tired. I could give you, like, five or six stories back to back of, like, encounters with dudes in, like, the last two or three years. I remember when I got divorced, I was going very much so out of my way not to speak negatively of men in general. I might say something about specific people who do dumb shit. I made a really intentional point when I talked about things that, were negative that men did to say some men or not all men or most men, but to leave a qualifier for, you know, to acknowledge that good men existed. And I remember this woman came in my DMs and she was like, you're so bitter since, you know, your husband left you. But I was like, I'm bending over backwards, like to be in a sense dishonest about my experiences. And I still get called bitter. So now I'm just like, fuck it. I'm going to get the label either way. And not necessarily because I'm bitter, but because I'm honest. I say that to say the divorce is not what made me start looking at men like, I don't know if I can do y'all anymore and not necessarily not do y'all and go do women, but just on some like, I might just have to like go this life alone. Most of the guys I've dated and I'm still doing it. I'm giving you a most as a qualifier to leave room for these mythical great men that like I'm not really sure exist anymore. I really ask myself, like, am I giving off something that attracts people to me that treat me so terribly or just say crazy shit to me? Like, can you be my last hurrah fuck? Can I basically use your body as a masturbatory tool before I decide to go celibate? 
Like, do you look at me and think I'm desperate? Or you just don't have respect for women in general and me being a woman, I'm no exception to the rule. I don't know. So occasionally when I'm like really upset, I indulge in a bad habit. I won't share with you what that is, but I did it last night. I was like laughing at the whole thing because I was just like, yo, like who else does this happen to? And actually I shared this story on Facebook this morning and a bunch of other women were like, yeah, I've never got like the... The last hurrah before celibacy call, but I have gotten the, I'm about to get married next week. And can you know, can you be my like last fuck before I'm married? Niggas really be out here trying it. I don't know if there's a point to this. I just wanted to tell y'all that like, I might have to go to Niecy Nash route. Niecy did this interview on Round Table Talk. She looks so fucking happy. And Niecy Nash is a great actress. But I was like, if she's acting for this shit, give this woman her Oscar now. She looks so happy. Her and her wife, like their energy is palpable. And I was like, is that what I need to be doing? Do I just need to, to go out and find a soul that matches mine, no matter what genitalia it comes with? Like I said, I'm not into cat. I don't think I could do dick no more. I really think last night was the night where I'm just like, yo, I'm done with dudes. And I know I always sound like I'm joking, which by the way, I've never, the entire time I've had this podcast, have never once intentionally made a joke. People be like, Demetria, you're so funny. And I'd be like, am I? It might just be me and this high-end vibrator riding it out, y'all. I'm just saying. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I told you we had an interview today, the respectable portion of the podcast, with Rainier from Love Life of an Asian Guy. And I've told you all about him already. I asked that even if he may not be giving the, the rah-rah ratchet energy that you sometimes come to this podcast for, that you listen to him with intent because I really think that he has a lot of great things to say. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please welcome Rainier from Love Life of an Asian Guy. To ratchet and respectable. Rainier, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It is a pleasure to have you. I'm a huge fan of your work. Thank you for having me on. As of late, like many other people, you've been talking about anti-Asian sentiment, especially in the wake of the mass murder, not the bad day, in Atlanta. This is not a new issue for you. You've been talking about this for years. There's been much conversation about the uptick in, in violence and hate against Asian Americans. I wonder kind of if this is something like with with Black folks in that it's been going on forever and now people are just talking about it more or maybe they're reporting it more or do you think that there's genuinely an uptick? I think um, it's a case of both. On one hand, if you're looking at the history of uh, Asians in America, there has 
always really been violence against um, Asian people. I mean, whether you're talking about the first wave of Chinese immigrants who came to California and who were, I mean, a lot of them were, you know, abused and, and lynched out on the streets. And that's really the formation of Chinatown. Chinatown became um, a literal safe place uh, where Chinese immigrants can go and live without the risk of their businesses being uh, uh, burnt down and um, attacked by white supremacists. And so throughout the history of Asian Americans being in this country, um, there have been numerous cases of you know people going to uh, Asian neighborhoods and attacking them. Um, you know whether you're talking about the uh, internment of Japanese Americans or whether you're talking about the mistreatment of Filipino farm workers, um, and even when you're discussing the the history of America's wars in Asia and how a lot of that racism from the wars. Um, and that propaganda fueled American media. Um, I mean, there is just a very, very rich, and by rich, I mean very, unfortunately, dirty history of anti-Asian racism um, in American movies and TV shows. And so the type of violence that's been happening to Asian Americans has been very uh, underreported and oftentimes um, dismissed by American media itself. But obviously, it has a very different uh, context than, you know, black and brown Americans. Um, but the history is there, um, unfortunately, because a lot of Asian Americans uh, didn't have the luxury of having any uh, newspapers or any types of media outlets. It's just been difficult for Asian Americans to be able to voice those concerns. And so that's really been sort of the push over the last 15 years. Uh, but I think the recent events uh, do signify a relative uptick, especially if you're talking about since uh, the Trump administration and how uh, the Trump administration's rhetoric towards Asian people, towards China, towards um, discussions of the coronavirus have really amplified the sense that the already present anti-Asian racism needs to now be acted upon. And I think that is the, the primary distinction. I think the racism was always there, but I think the motivations to actually go out there and attack Asian people specifically was mobilized through this recent administration. So I'd say that it's uh, both you know consistent throughout history and also indicative um, of the recent administration. Have you had a a personal experience, I hope not violence, um, but I also hope not someone saying crazy things to you in the last few years with the with the Trump administration. Because I know like, I mean, as a black woman, I was like, white folks got bold. Like they would just say anything. Um, do you have that experience as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, really, the the origins of me talking about race um, in general started off because you know, in high school, just being known as an Asian person online would um, warrant torrents of white supremacists um, harassing me, sending me death threats. And that's been a constant ever since I've been online. And so that's why I've always been so outspoken about it, because for as long as I've been online, I've always received hate mail, threatening messages, white supremacists trying to, um, white supremacists trying to, you know, target my content, flag it, report it. Uh, and so the way that their racism impacts me, um, it's more than just words. It's, uh, you know, a number of different types of ways that harass me. And so um, I, I haven't luckily been sort of the victim of, uh, you know, a, a physical assault of, of, of white supremacists, although I have, you know, gotten fights with white people. But, you know, yeah, I, I can't necessarily say whether or not it was white supremacist um, in origins. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's always been a constant um on my platform. That's why I try to make it um, a rule that I don't allow any of that. Not I, I, I don't entertain it. I don't see it as a, you know, a funny or interesting um, opinion. Uh, I just recognize that every single time people try to engage in those conversations about anti-Asian racism and try to make it seem as if like, oh, you know, I'm just joking about Asian people and whatnot. I always know that it's just sort of, um, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. What do you think about the outpouring of, well, maybe you don't think it's an outpouring. What do you think about the response 
to what happened, the mass murder. I want to be very clear when I describe that, but the mass murder in Atlanta and the response that people are having to, to I guess, more conversations about anti-Asian sentiment. Are we getting this right? I think we're starting to at least open up the conversation about the complexity of of anti-Asian racism and and the violence that's happening uh, to, to Asian Americans. I think, especially with what happened in Atlanta, there are discussions of misogyny. There are discussions of discrimination against sex workers. Um, there's discussions of the way that Asian women um, have been marginalized and portrayed as essentially, you know, these items of sexual conquest for white men. And I think a lot of that does stem back to um, America's involvement in Asia during war. Um, and so many of these experiences um, with, you know, American soldiers coming into, say, for example, Southeast Asia and bringing back this, you know, warped perception that Asian women are just prostitutes and Asian women are just, you know, there for sexual pleasure. And that, you know, in a modern context, a lot of white men will try to look at Asian women as if they are supposed to be this, you know, object of sexual desire um, and sexual conquest. And I think a lot of those themes really resonate with what happened in Atlanta. Um, And I think, and I hope at least um, that we can start cracking open this issue and talk about how it's more than just, you know, even Trump. Uh, There's, there's the history and the legacy of America's um, involvement in Asia during wartime. Um, There's the history and legacy of, uh, American propaganda against Asian Americans. There's the um, history and legacy of uh, systemic racism against Asian Americans. And I think, you know, this should just be the gateway for us to talk about all those other tangential issues that are related. One of the things that you've been talking about very for a very long time, but more frequently now on on your Facebook page is I guess Black folk and Asian folk alliance, and then also some of the tension between the communities. And one of the things that I I really appreciate about you is that you boil down the tension to, I I think, the same cause. It's white supremacy. Yeah. So, I mean, if if we're even just talking about the the presence of Asian Americans and Black Americans, and there's there's no way that we can start the discussion of Asian Black relations without talking about how both communities were treated upon their arrival to this country, and how the positioning of them as below white people was calculated, and by framing Asian people and Black people as below white supremacists. Um, there was always just this feeling that Asian and black people can fight each other for the scraps. Um, and so if you're looking specifically at the history of Asian Americans, you know, when they first came, when the first wave of Chinese immigrants came, a lot of them, uh, were forced into labor, um, you know, working in the mines, uh, building out the transcontinental continental railroad, uh, alongside other immigrants like Irish immigrants and also uh, black American workers who are building these railroads. And so there is a very long history of, you know, Asian and black labor being exploited in these similar ways by white supremacists. Um, then if you want to go ahead and talk about the actual living conditions of Asian Americans, you know, there are so many stories of, um, you know, during the building of uh, the interstate highway, uh, black and Asian neighborhoods uh, were being removed because the government wanted to go ahead and set up the international state highway. And so you're talking about a history of displacement. Um, and then if you want to go ahead and discuss the impacts of redlining, even though redlining has you know, the most impact on black communities, there are also Asian immigrants who, when they came over to the United States, they were also redlined. Um, and so the entire positioning of, you know, where Asian Americans are allowed to live, which industries that are able to thrive in, their ability to 
um, gain representation in media, so many of those things, um, if you look at the choke point, the choke point of you know why we weren't able to live in different neighborhoods, why we weren't able to go into certain industries, why we were even excluded from immigrating into the United States during the Chinese Exclusion Act. Again, all of that falls on the responsibility of white politicians and white leadership. And again, when you look at the people who are in leadership and the reasonings for why they were trying to disenfranchise Asian Americans, it's for the same types of racist reasons that they disenfranchise and look down upon black people, which is this overall sense that the country is for white people. Everybody else is here to mooch. Everyone else is here to not participate. Um, and so I try to just tell as many people as possible that, you know, if you look at that history, um, you can also see moments within those cracks where there are a lot of black and Asian people who recognized what was going on. They recognized the veil that was being put over their heads and said, you know what? I'm not going to buy into this trap of them telling me that Asian people are my enemy or that black people are my enemy. And you can see this um, throughout history, whether you're talking about the, uh, the legacy of black civil rights leaders um, protesting the Vietnam War, uh, whether you're talking about the alliances between the Black Panthers and um, Asian Americans in the Third World Liberation Front, um, there are a number of instances where Asian Americans and Black people did um, form alliances. And although you know those are really important, and I think it is important for us to to recognize a history, um, I also do recognize that there is that other half of Asian and black relationships that isn't as positive. And so um, I try to also let Asian people know that although there is this sort of, um, I don't want to say flowery, but I think it, although there is a, a more positive aspect of black and Asian relationships, we also need to look at the reality of where we fucked up, where Asian Americans are exploiting black neighborhoods, how Asian Americans perpetuate anti-blackness. And so you know, I, I try to just as much as I can um, tell people that there is a very 3D, very multi-layered relationship between these communities. And we shouldn't just think of it as unanimously good or bad. We just have to look at it as complicated. Complicated, complex. Um, well, that leads into my next question for you, because um, as much as I look at the similarities and I do think that there's uh, good necessary cause for the benefit of everyone for an alliance. Um, I also recognize that there have been many incidents in the communities. Um, and I'm thinking about like in, I guess, Brooklyn a year or two ago, there was a, a, some women didn't pay for their, um, their eyebrows. Um, they didn't, they didn't like the way it was done. And so they paid for their other services. They didn't pay for their eyebrows and they were attacked by by shop owners, literally like with sticks and brooms and through acetone in their face. Stories like that stay in, imagination is not the right word, stay in the consciousness. And so even now, when a lot of people are speaking about um, anti-Asian sentiment and people are hashtagging and talking about um, stop Asian hate, there's still some pushback. And they say, well, why should I care? And they go and they talk about these instances, um, of mm -hmm. which there are many, of people in, in the Asian community not treating black folks well. How do we get past that? Can we get past that? It's, it's not something that we can get past. It's something that we have to understand and we have to actively work towards fixing. Um, you know, the, the history of anti-blackness and, you know, violence against black clientele within Asian businesses is incredibly long. I mean, you, you, you brought up the, uh, the name Latasha Harlins and she's just, you know, one of the the many figures uh, throughout history that have been mistreated um, within these spaces. I mean, there are so many instances of, um, you know, black clients. Uh, was upset at a black, a young black girl who was underage and she wanted a refund because she wasn't happy with uh, the work that they did on her nails and they blocked her in. They didn't want her to leave. I think the manager tried to beat her up. And there's this, uh, 
a, a very um very unfortunate trend and um history of this type of behavior and so i completely understand when when there are a lot of black folks who are like okay yeah, i understand what's going on with asian but this is still a problem um because it is a problem and it's it's not even just a you know here, here's a few bad apples like this is a systemic issue um it, it it goes all the way into the formation of so many of these businesses and the fact that they are located in black neighborhoods the fact that so many of them are designed to sell products for black people even though the owners aren't black people it's designed this way where you know you could be a asian shop owner selling black products but you don't want any of them to be owned by black businesses so there is a very valid very real concern um when it comes to these things because it's like you know how, how can we talk about the rise in anti-asian racism when there is still this issue within our culture. Um, and again, it's not just these businesses. I mean, there's, you know, there's a very unfortunately healthy, quote, healthy um, community of conservative Asians and alt-right Asians. And um, unfortunately, I do see a lot of Asian Americans using the rise in anti-Asian racism and violence as a way to dismiss anti-blackness and to say, oh, well, you know, see, we deal with this stuff too. And I, I think going back to your point about how do we, how do we get through this? I think we need to directly address this head on. And I think we need more Asian Americans who are bold enough to say, you know what? Um, we need to start the conversation where Black folks are also having this conversation because we can't just start it in, you know, oh, the the discussion of racism in America. Oh, you know, um, let's start it. Let's start the timeline right after Trump got elected. Oh, this is the increase in in, in racism. Blah blah blah. Like, I need. I, I I think we need a much more comprehensive understanding of these two communities, um, and to understand that it goes back as far as Latasha Harlins or as far back to, you know, when the first wave of Asian immigrants came. So I think if we have a more complete understanding of the history, then we'll have a much better way of addressing uh, these current problems. Why is it important that, that black folk and Asian folk be allies in this? Why can't we just fight two separate fights? There always should be people who, you know, are, are committed and focused on the issues pertinent to their local communities uh, because, you know, obviously they'll have the greatest impact, they'll have the greatest visibility. But of course, there's always room for people who want to specifically work towards bridging that gap uh, and bridging that connection. And I think it's important for a number of reasons. One, I think it's important for um, the destruction of white supremacy and to be able to have different voices lending credibility to say, hey, you know, White supremacists are attacking everybody. White supremacists are, and their actions are implicating everybody. Um, obviously, not necessarily in the same ways, um, but I think it's important to be able to have different communities say, this is the evil that is um, making our lives worse and, and making it difficult for our communities. Um, but also, I mean, there are plenty of people who are both Asian and black. And these are people who, you know, uh, are, are sort of stuck in the middle and they shouldn't have to choose. And so I think it's just, a re it, it's really a matter of, you know, each individual, some people, um, you know, their, their activism is different. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad because you don't want to talk about Asians. Um, but I think we also should just be aware that all of this is in the same universe. I try to always tell people that like racism doesn't exist in a vacuum. You can't, you know, if you, if you are against anti-blackness, but you're not against anti-Asian racism, unfortunately that just in the reality of a white supremacist that just doesn't e exist. You know, they will, oh, if, if they see non-white people as beneath them, there's, there isn't going to be this, oh, well, I think that, you know, anti, uh, uh, I, I, I think that the, you know, the stereotypes against black people aren't real, but the ones about Asian people are not. Um, I, I just think that it, it, you can't really separate those two. You, you, there, if, if you believe 
that inequality shouldn't exist in one group, then it shouldn't exist in any of these groups. Um, and again, it's not to say that, you know, oh, if you're vocal about one community, you need to talk about another. But from an ideological standpoint, I think you should understand that at least, if, if that makes any sense. It makes total sense. I, I just, I say it a slightly more practically. I'm like, if you don't like the LGBT community or you don't like Jews, you're never really fond of the Blacks either. So I kind of need to join your fight, if nothing else, is self-preservation for my own. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's just the way that it's like, you know, if, a, if, if one dude is really, you know, abusive and misogynist to his wife, it's like, there's a chance that he's probably going to be like that to other people. And so it's sort of the same thing. Exactly. How can how can Black people be good allies right now? The way I look at it is sort of the way that I try to be allies with any other, you know, marginalized community that's outside of uh, my own identities. Uh, I, I think the best method is just to enter in these communities uh, as as someone looking to learn. You know, uh, not going in there to to say that I'm going to you know, be the leader of a movement or I'm going to change things up, but just to first, you know, get a lay of the land and see like who's talking, who are the voices that are really active in this space? What are some of the ideas and, and, and the different uh, concepts that people are talking about within these communities? Um, and just try to learn as much as you can. I think this doesn't necessarily mean that black people can't join the conversation. I, I think more should, uh, but I think it's just a matter of figuring out like, you know, what are uh, these people talking about? What are the differences between the way that East Asians and Southeast Asians and South Asians feel about these different issues? Um, what are the differences between the way that Asian Americans um, experience and view racism versus Asians who are outside of the United States? Um, and also just understanding the history of anti-Asian racism. Um, I think you know, if, if if more people actually saw some of these comics and some of the propaganda and, and some of the news reports of Asian people who have been murdered by police, by white mobs, um, they'd see that this has been a very consistent, but very consistent type of violence about history, but also a very consistently um, overlooked piece of history. Thank you. I will send them to your page and I will suggest that they start scrolling their way back. I was reading on your page earlier about, I want to say like a lynching in the 1860s. They lynched 10% of the, the uh, Chinese population in LA. I'd never heard of that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was shocked. Yeah. I mean, there was, um, again, this, and this is sort of coinciding with uh, what I was sort of talking about with the um, construction of Chinatowns, um, you know, during the gold rush when, when Chinese Americans came to the United States and they started to do very well, um, sort of the same tale of, of white men looking at non-white men as a threat to their labor force and them using violence as a way to stop them. White supremacy is very consistent. Not, not, not very creative, but very consistent very. across <laughs> very. the board. Thank you. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you think it's important for my audience to know? my overall resounding message is just um, to, to recognize that for so many communities of color, we are told that um, our destines are already written for us, that we are just nerds or that we are lazy or that we are criminals or that we are terrorists. Um, and so many of us internalize these narratives about ourselves because we see it in media, we see it uh, hyper-focused in history. Um, but I think more of us need to actively seek out each other's history. Um, I know for me, when I first started taking Asian American history classes um, and ethnic studies, I remember my first few classes, like I got kind of misty eyed because I was like, I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know about the, the rates of suicidal ideation among Filipinos. I didn't notice that there was this much poverty among uh, Southeast Asian people. Um, and I think when you learn about your own history and then you start to have an appreciation of how much was left out of American history books about your own people, you can also start to extend that to other communities and say, if they, if history didn't really tell us much about Asian people, what do they have to say about Mexican people? What do they have to say about black people? What do they have to say about all these other marginalized people 
and you'll start to see that there's just so much history um, that is overlooked. And I think when you look at those stories, uh, you'll start to illuminate um, the much broader picture of race in America. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And where can people follow you online? They can follow you on Facebook at Love Life of an Asian Guy. Can they follow you elsewhere? You can just type in LLAG, um, the LLAG, and you'll be able to find me on Instagram, uh, Facebook, or Twitter. Or you can go ahead and follow my agency at Lag Media. He's good, right? Just a couple notes. I had to edit this podcast for a little bit of length and for just a bit of clarity. He makes a mention of me referring to Latasha Harlins. I had to take it out because I mispronounced her, her last name. I should have followed up with him about that mention of alt-right Asians. There was just so much going on in that conversation. I feel like we could have had like a whole hour and I feel like we could have a part two. And that Chinese lynching shit blew my mind. Like I didn't know they was lynching Chinese folk too. I really thought the lynchings were just a black thing. But like Rainier said, when you, the more history you learn, the more knowledge you have, you start to see that, again, the common enemy isn't necessarily other people of color, but white supremacy. Thank you again, Rainier, for coming to Ratchet and Respectable. Huge fan. I was so happy to have him. That is the show for this week. There is Don't Waste Your Pretty merchandise still on the site, as promised. I'm keeping the hoodies up until April 15th. So if it is still chilly where you are, or at least gets chilly at night, please pick up a Don't Waste Your Pretty hoodie. Because once they're gone, they're not coming back out until fall. There are also Don't Waste Your Pretty t-shirts on the site. So if it's already hot where you are and your sweatshirt doesn't work anymore because you ain't trying to sweat to death, you can also pick up a Don't Waste Your Pretty tee. We have them in white, gold, and pink, red for now. There's also a teeny bit of Ratchet and Respectable merchandise on the site right now. I told you we were going to restock that. Yeah, we are. I don't like to announce anything until it's in the warehouse. So I will keep you posted on that. But as always, thank you for listening to Ratchet and Respectable Daddy. Because I know you like to stay to the end. Don't mention nothing to me about what you heard on this episode. I mean, the dating part, the Asian American part, nothing. Thank you. All right, everybody. Ooh, if you need some ratchet and respectable in your life between now and next week, you know I always got a shenanigan or two up my sleeve. Last night's shenanigan was a new character on Snowfall. He came out and took his shirt off. Shout out to, uh, what's his name? Shout out to Quincy Chad. If you're not familiar with Quincy Chad from Snowfall, you might want to slide over to my social media pages. Much love for Quincy and his D-cup. My God. That's it for Ratchet and Respectable this week. We'll talk again Tuesday. Okay, bye.